Romans chapter 12, beginning in verse 9, Paul writes, Let love be without hypocrisy. Abhor what is evil. Cling to what is good. Be kindly affectionate to one another with brotherly love, in honor giving preference to one another, not lagging in diligence, fervent in spirit, serving the Lord, rejoicing in hope, patient in tribulation, continuing steadfastly in prayer, distributing to the needs of the saints, given to hospitality, Remember the theme of the chapter, chapter 12. The theme is service. And remember that true service begins with personal consecration in verse 1. Motivated by love in verse 2. Remember Paul said, I beseech you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your reasonable service. Paul has issued the call to dedication in verses 1 through 3, transformation, and then an honest evaluation. Paul has said, you are gifted in verses 3 through 8. Our gifts are to glorify God and to edify the body And a failure to recognize and exercise those gifts means that we will be weak. We will be ineffective. A weak and ineffective church is disconnected from consecration and giftedness. But when it's connected, then we can have grace and mercy and love. We can exercise grace. We're able to love in verses 9 through 16. We have the opportunity not only to love each other, but to love people in the world in verses 17 through 21. We are members of a body in verses 3 through 8. And now Paul will bring attention to the fact that we are members of a family. In verses 9 through 13. We not only have a spiritual service to perform. But we have an obligation if you will. A responsibility. A way to behave in an intimate family. We're not only to reflect the Lord Jesus in our belief. But we are called to reflect Jesus in the very real way in which we live with one another. We need to have a way to express that love. James Montgomery Boyce writing about this chapter says, quote, Love is not some mushy emotion that embraces all, forgives all, forgets all, and requires nothing. In fact, you will notice at once that in our text, Paul does not even define love. He passes immediately to how love functions, unquote. And Boyce is exactly right. Paul defines love elsewhere in that very famous passage, which most of you are familiar with, the love passage of 1 Corinthians chapter 13. But in the definition of love, remember, it's sandwiched between his discussion of spiritual gifts in in chapter 12 and then the love chapter in verse 
in chapter 13, and then the subject of how to use those gifts in, in chapter 14 of 1 Corinthians. But here's the point that I want to make. The discussion of love is taking place both in Corinthians and in Romans in the context of your consecration, of spiritual examination, and spiritual giftedness. That's the point. How does love work? How does it function? Paul knows that central and essential to love is the concept of sincerity. It has to be genuine. It has to be without hypocrisy. It has to be discriminating. And that might come as a surprise to some of you. My blessed granny who I miss every Mother's Day. Mom, yes, we miss our grandma. My wise granny used to say, love, makes, love may not make the world go round, but it sure makes the trip worthwhile. Boy, was she right. Love may begin in the home, but the kind of love that Paul is speaking about and encouraging us to embrace is a love that we can have for one another. And so, It begins with a love that discriminates. Look at verse 9. Let love be without hypocrisy. Abhor what is evil. Cling to what is good. We all know that Jesus wants us to love each other. We are raised from from the very first aspect of our Christian walk. We all know that that is something that we must do. But we all know in moments of absolute honesty, we know how difficult that can be. Jesus told us to love the Lord with our whole heart and soul and mind in Matthew twenty two thirty seven, And then we're all familiar with the passage that says in Matthew twenty two thirty nine. And the second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. John 13, 34 says, A new commandment I give you, that you love one another as I've loved you. That you also love one another. We are called to lovingly participate in each other's lives. And for some of you, that rubs you the wrong way. You not only find it difficult, you find it almost impossible. You will come into a community setting and you will sometimes figure out a way how to exit that community setting. And so, for many, many people... They understand that this is something that Jesus wants them to do. They understand that this is something that Jesus expects. But they feel disconnected from God's Holy Spirit. They feel disconnected from Jesus. They feel disconnected from that love. And so even in this function of love, they, they, they hear these words, but they have practically no idea what it means for many of us we say I want to I I want to but I don't know how and so Paul says I'm going to help you understand how love sincerely so he begins with love without hypocrisy 
Love is controlled in verse 9. It's careful in verse 10. It serves the Lord in verse 12. It conquers trials in verse 12. It meets the needs of others in verse 13. So he's going to open up the window and give us an opportunity to try and explore what this might mean. And for many of us, for many of us, when we're faced with this issue, we might quietly say in our own hearts, I want to. But I don't know how. And Paul wants to help. There are others who say, I don't want to. Imagine you come to church and you've already come to the conclusion You've already spoken your own personal sermon inside of your heart. You don't want to. You don't want to do this. And so you'll say, I guess I'll have to pretend in order to make Jesus happy, in order to make my wife happy, in order to make my family happy, in order to make the church happy, I guess I'm just going to have to pretend and go through the charade. And then all of a sudden you remember that Jesus knows everything about everything and you know that the hypocrisy and the charade will eventually catch up with you. And so he says, let love be without hypocrisy. Why, why go there? You see, Paul begins by describing the quality of love. It must be without hypocrisy. That means without a show or Pretending to be something that you're not. The opposite of this is in all sincerity. The word for love is the very familiar word agape. And obviously agape has been described and defined in so many different places as God's love or undeserved love. And so J.B. Phillips renders this verse, let us have no imitation love. You might take your some mother out for lunch or for dinner today, and they may order imitation crab. Somebody went to a restaurant and says, do you serve crab? And the the server said, we serve anybody. (laughs) When Paul is saying, let it be without hypocrisy, he means no posers. Paul understood that it would be Possible to use spiritual gifts in an unspiritual way. And so elsewhere in 2 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 6, he talks about a love unfeigned or a love not pretended. James, the brother of Jesus, says, without hypocrisy. Peter in chapter 1 verse 22 says unfeigned love. But we live in a culture, we live in a culture, we live in a culture that values symbol over substance. We live in a culture that values image over something that is real in and of itself. We get constant bombardments to our senses, that image is everything, that if you look okay, and if you smell okay, and if you act okay, and that the pretense itself for many people becomes the way of life, and the Lord Jesus in the most radical, countercultural way possible, demonstrates that not only can love be possible, 
that it can be real, that it can be sincere, and that it's not limited to the saints on the inside, but on the ain'ts on the outside, the believer must not pretend to love. And so immediately he says, demonstrate real love, real respect, real interest, real care, real concern. Not from impure motives. I want you to just think for just a moment of what might constitute an impure motive. What's in it for me? What can I gain? How is this going to advance me or my position? How can I push myself forward? How can I find favor? Should I go to church in order to sell my product or to sell my network? And you know what? God bless your product and God bless your network. And no one wants you to be more successful than me. But there is a success that goes way beyond whatever product you embrace because there's a different product that we're pushing. It's a product that includes mutual respect and encouragement and love and forgiveness and an attachment to the real Jesus. If the quality of love is no hypocrisy, then the morality of love is abhor what is evil. And if you aren't a person who underlines your Bible, this might be one of those places where you might break the rule and go, I wonder what that could possibly mean. I wonder what it means to abhor what is evil. Let me ask you a different question. Does the Bible condemn discrimination? And I'm going to suggest to you that there is a wicked kind of discrimination. There's a kind of a discrimination that's associated with racism, that's associated with sexism. There's a kind of discrimination that takes advantage, if you will, of people, that is unhealthy, that is narrow-minded, that really is the appropriate word when we use the word intolerant. Yet discrimination can also mean something else. Discrimination is the ability to distinguish, to discern, to differentiate. All of my children are grown and gone. They're big and they're strong and they have their own families and they, they do a wonderful job. But when they were little, they weren't able to discern things all that well. Some of them, before they, right after they learned how to walk, would go into our backyard and they would start digging in the grass and they would find snails and then they would eat them. And so when you see your little boy all covered with green slime all over his mouth, smiling as big as the day is long, he has no idea that he's just eaten a snail. And it's really hard to tell a child, you probably shouldn't put that in your mouth. Probably a bad idea. 
We live in a world where we're told that every idea, every ideology, every viewpoint is valid and must be affirmed. And some suggest that truth is subjective and that each person must determine for himself or herself what constitutes right, what constitutes wrong, what constitutes good, and what constitutes evil. And some people will actually read this verse, abhor what is evil and think this is evil as I define it and you would be wrong because it's not evil as you define it it is evil as God defines it and the moment you embrace the belief that there is something true that there's something good that there's something right you run the risk of being labeled intolerant by those who do not share your views but the bible stands in opposition to those in the world that embrace a distorted view of tolerance god isn't even the least bit threatened or intimidated by those who dismiss his existence who deny his word who doubt his ability to affect his will but there are people in the world who believe that jesus is evil and that christianity is evil and that the gospel is evil That shouldn't shock you or surprise you. You probably know that. But remember, the moment that you affirm that there is a real God, and the moment that you affirm that there's a real gospel, the moment that you affirm that there is a real Jesus with a real hope of salvation and redemption and forgiveness and reconciliation, you begin to understand something, that the Bible, the Bible speaks of goodness. The Bible speaks of justice. It speaks of righteousness. It describes What is absolute and true and unchanging and applicable to all. And the very fact that Paul writes, abhor what is evil, means that there is something or someone that can in fact be called evil. And I'm going to suggest to you that the Bible paints a picture of people who disconnect from the worldview that there is no God. That there is no Jesus who rose from the dead. That there is no resurrection from the dead. That there is no such thing as forgiveness of sin. That there is no such thing as a future. That what they are doing is they're compounding evil upon evil upon evil. Because what they fail to understand and sometimes connect the dots. Is that when you are disconnected from God and disconnected from the the gospel and disconnected from Jesus... You'll give yourself permission to do things that you shouldn't do. One very practical way to love each other is to hate evil. And most of us would never come to that conclusion. Well, what's the most practical way to love each other? Well, be nice to each other and speak kindly to one another. And all of that is true. But a very practical way to love each other is to abhor evil. And by the way, this is one of the strongest words in the Greek language. It's a very long word. 
But it's a word that means to hate with intense feeling. It means to loathe. It means to despise. It means when you look upon it, you look upon it in disgust or horror. And the image that I get is when I see my wife when she sees a snake. She goes, and then she'll typically say, I hate snakes. And you've met people that when they see something, their face changes. They get chill bumps up their spine. They despise this particular thing. That's what he's talking about. Love desires the very best for people. And because love desires the very best for people, it requires hating what's worst for people. It requires hating what destroys life, what takes life away, what takes freedom away, what takes respect away. Another way to practically love people isn't simply to hate what is wrong. It is to love what is right or to cling what is, to, to what is good. And the word used here, cling or Cleave is, a, is another long Greek word, but it means to fashion, it means to attach, it means to cement, it means to glue. But the primary emphasis seems to, may, to be to make a permanent connection to that which is good. In other words, you disconnect from that which is wicked and evil and you connect to that which is good. Love, love, love is never soft on evil. Evil must be hated. And if it's not hated, it'll be tolerated. And if it's tolerated, it'll it'll be accommodated. And once it's tolerated and once it's accommodated, then guess what? It will eventually be celebrated. You know what? I, I didn't see it. I didn't see it. I couldn't bring myself to see it. But someone this week told me, hey, did you hear about this lady who, who posted her abortion on YouTube? And, and I didn't know how to respond. I, I, I was so disgusted. I was so overcome with dread and horror and grief and pain. And I began to think what kind of a person would allow herself to have her abortion filmed. And then I began to take the journey of what kind of a person watches it. And I began to think, when you accommodate wickedness and tolerate wickedness and then celebrate wickedness, then you lose all sense of, of the meaning. Again, Phillips writes, quote, let us have a genuine break with evil. And a real devotion to what is good. And you see, both of these things are connected to one another. It's not good enough that you stop lying. You have to start telling the truth. It's not good enough that you stop stealing. You have to start working. It's not good enough that you 
disconnect from that which is impure. You have to now connect to that which is pure. C.S. Lewis wrote, quote, I remember Christian teachers telling me long ago that I must hate a bad man's actions, but not hate the bad man. Or as they would say, hate the sin, but not the sinner. And for a long time, I used to think that that's a silly, straw-splitting distinction. How could you hate what a man did and not hate the man? But years later, it occurred to me that there was one man to whom I had been doing this all my life. Namely, myself. However much I might dislike my own cowardice or my own conceit or my own greed, I went on loving myself. There had never been the slightest difficulty about it. In fact, the very reason I hated the things was that I loved the man. Just because I loved myself, I was sorry to find that I was the sort of man who did those things. Consequently, Christianity does not want us to reduce by one atom the hatred that we feel for cruelty and treachery. Lewis writes, quote, we ought to hate them. Not one word of what we have said about them needs to be unsaid. But it does want us to hate them in the same way in which we hate things in ourselves. Being sorry that the man should have done such things and hoping if it is any way possible that somehow, sometime, somewhere, he can be cured and made human again. And unquote. And, and so, it, 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 again, it just reminded me that as upset and disoriented and disgusted, I'm wondering if there's something in my heart that would ask and answer a different question. What about that woman? What about her? Where is she? Who is she? Why would she do such a thing? And you begin to pray for her. And you begin to pray for her circumstance. And you begin to pray for her life. And you begin to pray for what in the world could possibly bring a person to the conclusion that this could be something other than disgusting. In order to hate what is evil, you have to be willing to break from what is evil. God hates divorce. And do you know why? Because the divorce destroys the marriage. And because the divorce destroys the marriage, the d- divorce destroys the family. And because it de- de- destroys the family, it destroys the children. And because it destroys the children, it destroys the the culture. Divorce alienates and it impoverishes everyone who participates in it. And so when we stand against evil, when we stand against poverty, when we stand against hunger, when we stand against hurt, when we stand against pain, when we stand against alcohol abuse and drug abuse and cursing and bitterness and impurity and indecency and in sexual immorality or greed or corruption, we're doing so for a reason. I want you to think about this perhaps in a way that you've never thought about it before. You show love when you hate 
evil and sin. This is why Paul writes in 1 Thessalonians 5.22, Abstain from all appearance of evil. James 4.17, Therefore to him who knows to do good and does not do it, to him that is sin. And so this is a love that will exclude evil, but that will include People, look at verse 10. This is the love that incorporates be kindly affectionate to one another with brotherly love. And by the way, this is the love that includes. Remember, not excludes. This is the love that is committed to family life, to community life. This is the kind of love that says, I come to church, not simply to worship God, although, and I'm glad that you do, because that's why we're primarily here, to worship the Lord. But guess what? In our worship, this is a worship that includes loving and caring about one another. This is love's commitment to the church. This is care about the feelings of others. And so when Paul writes, be kindly affectionate to one another, it means devoted to one another. The word was used in the Greek world to describe family relationships. Philos, storgos. Here Paul combines the thought of family devotion and friend devotion. So Paul doesn't say, be indifferent, be cold, be cautious, be apathetic, be reluctant, be resistant. It doesn't say that. It says, we love when we're affectionate towards one another and when we give preference to one another. This is Paul's way of saying, we treat each other like we would a friend in our family. And I know for some of you, you go, oh, you mean treat them you, you grew up in a, world, in a world or a family where that meant beating each other or hitting each other or yelling and screaming at each other or antagonizing and alienating each other or threatening one another. That's not the family that Paul has in mind. And you may have grown up in that family. And I feel sorry for you. I know what it's like to grow up in a world where people don't always do things exactly the way that they probably should be done. And so, the love and the warmth that Paul is talking about is a love and a warmth that makes allowances for weaknesses, for family imperfections, It still retains a sense of commitment and support whenever you hear someone say, but he's my brother. He's my sister. When someone says, I want you to hate your mother the way I hate her. I want you to hate your father the way I hate him. I want you to hate your family the way I hate him. And you go, you know what? I I just can't go there. We have family members who do what is wrong. There was a mother who was pleading for 
for her son. And I got to tell you, her son was no gem. He was no specimen of perfection. He, he hated the police. He hated society. He hated his neighbors. He hated his family. He, in no uncertain term, hated his mother and he hated his father. He didn't care about anyone. And the judge says, he doesn't care about you, not even one bit. And she goes, I know, but he's my son. There's some sort of extraordinary stretching that takes place where weakness becomes something even more than weakness and imperfection becomes something more than imperfection. And you still retain a sense of commitment and you still retain a sense of support. So this is the love that not only incorporates, but look at the end of verse 10. This is the love that vacates. In what way? You decide that you are going to go not to the front of the line, but to the end of the line. Look what it says, in honor, giving preference to one another. The expression in honor means respect. It means esteem. We vacate the first place. We occupy the second place. Sometimes the third place or the fourth place. This is the place where you open the door and you let them go first. The word means taking the lead or setting the example. In honor, giving preference. We look at each other and we say, you go first. And they go, you go first. No, no, you go first. That the real battle, the real division, the real conflict is who's going to go first? You're so busy loving each other and ministering to one another and encouraging one another that you actually fight over who's going to take the first place. Wouldn't that be fun? We look at each other and say, please and thank you. Christian love inspires us To honor all. It says giving preference to one another. The context seems to be those who are in the family of faith. But I'm going to suggest to you that there is a sense in which this applies to everyone. We value people. Because they're created in the image of God. We respect and recognize fellow believers. But we also understand that all people require respect. Christians are fellow heirs with Christ The unbeliever is created in the image of God and the likeness of God and they are loved by God and the same Jesus who loves you, who died for you, who rose from the dead for you, who thinks about you every moment of every day, thinks about them. So how do we take Paul's exhortation to heart? We speak to people, we engage them. Have you ever talked to someone who left the church because they said no one was friendly? Strangers, visitors will sometimes feel slighted or overlooked or not honored, taken for granted, not thanked, not recognized, not appreciated. And you see, there's more than just glad handing a person or throwing your arms around them. It's really caring. It's really looking for people. Why aren't they here? Where did you go? I once read a story about a pastor's conference. It says, quote, Once a beloved servant of Christ was in a side room with other notables. It was a big meeting. 
before a gigantic crusade. Several had already moved onto the platform, and then it was his turn. And when he appeared at the door, everyone stood to their feet and thunderous applause broke out. (coughs) He quickly stepped aside and applauded as he was staring. He he, he was looking to share. He was looking for the person that everyone (laughs) was applauding and it was him. (laughs) But he sincerely had no idea. That's the kind of preference. Love of the brethren is proof of spiritual life. That's what it says in 1 John chapter 3, verse 14. We know, we know that we have passed from death to life because we love the brethren. He who does not love his brother abides in death. Paul, or John is writing and he's basically saying to the person who's asking the question, how can I know that I'm really saved? If you hate God and you hate each other, then the chances are you're in, there's something wrong. We've all heard the statement, to dwell above with saints we love, that will indeed be glory to dwell below with saints we know. Well, that's a different story. But Paul is basically saying, the challenge to love is a real challenge. And look at verse 11, not lagging in diligence, fervent in spirit, serving the Lord. I want you to think about the challenge that Paul lays before us. How love affects your character. And then how love affects those you come in contact with. And then how love affects how you conduct yourselves one with another. Love is committed to the service of the Lord. The the New Living Translation says, Never be lazy in your work, but serve the Lord enthusiastically. And again, remember the context is consecration, self-examination, giftedness, and service to one another. So I'm going to suggest to you when it says not lagging in diligence and fervent in spirit serving the Lord, the primary focus isn't what you do at work, although I don't think that the passage is disconnected from what you do at work. But I think its primary focus is on how you actually treat one another. This is love's energetic expression. Fervent in spirit means burning. It says, the RSV says, never lag in zeal, but be aglow with the spirit, serving the Lord. It's sort of that, like that Latin expression. My blood is burning. It's, it's that kind of almost over-the-top kind of stuff. Warren Wiersbe makes this challenge, quote, If Christians cannot get along with each other, how can they face their enemies? Unquote. That's exactly right. This is the kind of love that involves energy, not lazy. Enthusiasm, fervent in spirit. Exaltation, serving the Lord. All of that is good. The context is the work of love. 
as a gifted person in the body of Christ. You're not to be lazy about your spiritual gifts. You are to exercise them. Once you understand and recognize what they are, guess what? You're called to make a difference in each other's life. You must not be lazy about your assignment to love. You're to boil over with enthusiasm. And so as challenge to love, we move from the character of love to the contact of love to the conviction of love. And look what it says in verse 12, rejoicing in hope. Again, the New Living Translation says, be glad for all God is planning for you. I think that that's right. Rejoicing in hope, this is love's expectation. Those who follow Jesus will encounter opposition and discouragement and satanic attack. The Christian knows about trial and suffering and persecution. That suffering, trial, persecution, these are all things that are part of our commitment to Christ. Humility and the willingness to share and bear burdens. These are the marks of being a Christian. And so when Paul writes, rejoicing in hope, Paul is giving us a way of thinking about the way that love functions. It doesn't look simply at the present trial. Hey, things are going really bad, I know. Things are going bad in my family, I know. Things are going horrible with my son, I know. Things are going horrible in this circumstance, and that circumstance, and this circumstance, and that circumstance. And we don't deny the trial, and we don't deny the suffering, and we don't deny the disturbing circumstances that are taking place place in the present, but we look at it under the lens of what's going to happen in the future. We're going to get through this. Today is going to lead to tomorrow, and tomorrow is going to lead to next week, and next week is going to lead to next month, and next month is going to lead to next year, and eventually we're going to find ourselves in eternity. Eventually we're going to see Jesus coming back. We don't ignore the struggles in the present, but we anticipate the wonders of tomorrow. Hope sees heaven through the thickest clouds. Why are you looking up? Because I can't, I can't simply be content to see what I'm seeing here. In order for me to understand and evaluate what I'm seeing here, I have to think about what is there. We see Jesus coming back. Someone, it was Gilbert Branken who said, Other men see only a hopeless end, but the Christian rejoices in an endless hope. It's all falling apart. I know it looks like it's all falling apart, but guess what? It's all falling into place. Patient in tribulation. That's why he can say that. When you love Jesus and you love each other, you can rest assured that it will cost you something. Patient in tribulation. When Paul writes patient in tribulation, remember it's connected to rejoicing in hope. Our present tribulation doesn't diminish. It doesn't incapacitate. It doesn't disconnect from the future hope. We're to exercise patient. We're to endure hardship, Paul writes, like a good soldier. This is the love that holds on. This is the love that holds tight. Perseverance 
is patient in deep difficulty. And the pain and the suffering and the, and the difficulty, these are roads that lead to character that takes on Christ. This is a genuine confidence in the promises of Jesus. And then a genuine love for Jesus. And then a willingness to share that love of Jesus. Someone who has faced adversity is like the diamond dust that heaven polishes its jewels with. It's as if God is forming you, shaping you. F.R. Maltby wrote, quote, Jesus promised his disciples three things. That they would be completely fearless. That they would be absurdly happy. And that they would be in constant trouble. And it's true. This is why there's more evil in one drop of sin than an entire ocean of affliction. The ocean of affliction will change you. It will mold you. It will shape you. It will determine what kind of a person you really are. And look what it says, the love that intercedes, continuing steadfastly in prayer. Think where we've come. Hope, hardship, prayer, hope involving promise, tribulation turning to patience, and then we pray. And look what Paul writes, steadfastly. We pray in Jesus' name. We pray and unite God's omnipotence and his power to whatever it is that we need. His will becomes our will. His love becomes our love. In Colossians 4.2, Paul writes, continue in prayer. Watch in the same, with thanksgiving, with all, praying also for us that God would open a door of utterance to speak the mystery of Christ for which I am in chains or bonds that I may make it manifest so that I can speak how I'm supposed to speak. And so when he says continuing steadfastly, it speaks of devotion. This devotion is a lifeline. It is a lifeline that connects to God. And the connection is a connection that makes love possible. The Greek word means to attend to something on a constant basis. So we attend to prayer. What in the world does prayer have to do with love? It has everything to do with love. Because the moment that you pray for someone who's hurting you, the moment you pray for someone who's tormenting you, the moment you pray for someone that you're angry with or you're irritated with or you're aggravated with or you're alienated from, you're forced to ask God, God, what do you think of this person? I love them and care about them. I don't. I know. Well, what do you want me to do? I want you to, to care about them the way I care about them. I want you to think about them the way I think about them. I want you to see their life and their circumstance the way I see it. How do you see it, Lord? They're disconnected from me. They're disconnected from me. I need you to tell them about me. I need you to point them to me. I need you to, to remind them about me. Jesus is the source of love and wisdom and Jesus deepens our love and then Jesus informs our understanding. John Phillips writes, praise, patience, prayer. These are the anchors for the Christian, unquote. R.A. Torrey says, the chief purpose of prayer 
is that God would be glorified in the answer. A.W. Tozer said, to pray effectively, we must want what God wants. That, and only that, is to pray the will of God, unquote. Our challenge is to love. Our challenge is to exercise the gifts. Our challenge is then to love each other, knowing that our character affects our conduct, which affects our convictions and gives us the ability to express our concerns. And now we understand why Paul is doing what he's doing. Because this is the love also that helps. Look what it says. Distributing to the needs of the saints, given to hospitality. Again, connect the dots. Hope, hardship, prayer, helps. Hospitality, love helps, love cares, love shares. And so Paul knows that love sees need as an aggressive opportunity to love. John Phillips again says, A lavish generosity with one's worldly goods is the mark of true discipleship, unquote. Hospitality is the love that leads us to care for strangers. And by the way, that's the exact meaning of the Greek word. Philos, affection. Xenos, stranger. Philoxenia, it means love for strangers. And so here the application is these These are the, when it says hospitality in verse 13, distributing to the needs of the saints, loving those people in the church, given to hospitality. The implication means in part to those who are either outside of the church or who are not like us. This is the love that fights our fear and fights our prejudice. This is the love that looks past color, past nationality, past religion, past gender, past age, past fashion sensibilities. There is some evidence that the New Testament writers were convinced that when Paul wrote this, that this is exactly the way they were going to live their lives. The emperor Hadrian received a letter from Aristides. Aristides Aristides wrote to Hadrian. This is in about 131 AD. He says, quote, They love one another. They never fail to help widows. They save orphans from those who will hurt them. If they have something, they freely give to the man who has nothing. If they see a stranger, they take him home. And they're even happy to do so. And they treat him as if he were a real brother. They don't consider themselves brothers and sisters in the usual sense. But brothers instead through the spirit in God. Unquote. This from an unbeliever to the emperor of Rome as he observes Christians. Can you imagine if people did a detailed analysis as they go and they went from church to church to church and they said, let's do a detailed analysis and see what we can see. It was Alfred Lord Tennyson who said, "'Tis better to have loved and lost than to never have loved at all." We understand about that. That every time we love, we're taking a risk. But we're sometimes frightened and uncomfortable And we 
chant the mantra of a broken generation, well, I find it hard to, to trust people. I find it hard to be with people. I find it hard to not lose hope. C.S. Lewis claimed that never loving was a kind of death in and of itself. Tennyson said, losing a love by death is better than not having loved at all. C.S. Lewis says, never loving is a kind of death in and of itself. He writes, to love at all is to be vulnerable. To love anything, and your heart will certainly be wrung and possibly be broken. If you want to make sure of keeping it intact, you must give your heart to no one, not even an animal. Wrap it carefully around with hobbies and luxuries and avoid all entanglements. Lock it up in in the safe or in the casket or in the coffin of your selfishness. But in the casket, safe and dark and motionless and airless, it will change. It will not be broken. It will become unbreakable, impenetrable, irredeemable. The alternative to tragedy, or at least to the risk of tragedy, is damnation. The only place outside heaven where you can be perfectly safe from all the dangers and perturbations of love is hell. Unquote. Now we understand. It's not never loving that empties your heart. It's not loving that empties your heart. It's not not giving that empties your purse. It's in keeping everything that you have that empties your purse. That's what drains you. And so Paul's challenge... Love, love lacks hypocrisy, love discriminates, love hates evil, love embraces what is good, love expresses itself in devotion, unselfishness, enthusiasm, hope, consistency, prayerfulness, generosity. And so what makes love impossible? Fear and selfishness. No wonder fear is the opposite of love. No wonder the Bible says perfect love casts out fear. Faith makes things possible. Hope makes things bright. And love makes things easy. So that's the challenge. Let's pray. Heavenly Father. Lord, it is a challenge. Some of us are up for the challenge. Some of us are quite frightened by the challenge. But Lord, I pray that we could get past our fear. And that Lord, in the function of love, as we've just heard from Paul, Lord, that, that we would begin to understand and embrace that our sanctification or our, 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 our willingness to consecrate ourselves 
and our willingness to examine ourselves and our willingness to embrace the gifts that you've given to us are so that we could do exactly this to love the Lord and to love each other. This isn't a love that's disconnected from the gospel or disconnected from Christ or disconnected from what Jesus does inside of us. So Lord, again, we pray that you would grow us up, that you would mature us, and we could fulfill the law of love. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's stand.